because you should be able to sleep at night. Uh, and if something can happen, always, right? Not everything is in our control. So uh, let me give you the best and the worst deal that, that we did so far. So our best deal was a 15-month project with a 33% annual return to investors. Uh, divorce so far, let me not conclude. Uh, there was a, a, a project we did, and because of COVID, we got delayed and pro some other reasons. So we decided to sell the land, and it took three buyers to buy. So the buyers were coming and walking away, but at the, the same time, we had to pay mortgage. Hey, fellow real estate investors, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we have Michael Carlab on the show today, so we are excited to have him from CFP Group. Uh, he is a fellow Canadian who is doing some great things uh, in Canada and the United States. And uh, many of you know, we are also in the United States now, so it's always interesting for us to connect with other Canadians who are actually doing the same thing. Um, he is well-established. He has a great track record. They've raised quite a lot of capital and deployed it in various projects. So we're really excited to pick his brain and learn more about how he has done this, um, you know, over the sort of uh, multiple decades of investing that uh, experience that he has and to just really understand it from a Canadian perspective. Um, I know that we we often talk to people who are doing uh, large syndications and all that, but a lot of them are south of the border. So it's definitely different when you're Canadian doing this. And we can say this from experience. So uh, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, maybe you, for our listeners, um, you can just give us a quick introduction of yourself and maybe tell us just a little bit about what led you to the path of investing in real estate. Okay. So, yeah. So I spent about 20 years uh, working in an IT company. Uh, real estate was really a fluke. A friend of mine came to visit me. Uh, it was uh, February 2010, maybe March. And he said he he just bought a condo in in Miami. And I know after the, the crash of 2008, things were bad. I just yeah. never realized they were so bad. So he showed me the prices. And I was on the plane within a few weeks with, with my other friends uh, going there and buying the first property without knowing anything. Like really, just went on a plane, did a little bit of research, what we want to buy and we bought the first condo. Uh, and I figured out if it's something is cheap, and selling at a huge discount, there's not so much room for, for mistakes. So, yeah, we still hold that property to this day. Oh, it was nice. 13 years ago. Uh, yeah, so it's it's still one of our assets. Uh, and then I started doing a little bit more deals. Uh, another, we bought another condo, then we did a triplex. And then I was, was introduced to reach that education. And the company had the different names in Canada. It was Tiger and then Legacy. So I did some classes. I took a mentor. Um, and one of the things he told me that I should start working with investors, learn different strategies. And uh, that's what I've been doing since uh, for the past nine years. I've been working with investors, started with one, then two. Then the ball started rolling. Uh, 2017, I left the corporate world. So I've been doing real estate investing for the full time now. And yeah, we've grown to about 150 investors in Canada and the United States, some international as well. So. So yeah, last last year we did uh, we placed approximately ten million dollars of investor funds in various projects that we participated. So yeah, it's it's been a journey with upside and uh, you know downsides. It's never straight path to success, but yeah, I would have would have done it again for sure. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> and we're gonna get to all of those uh, <clears throat> great things that you talked about. 
Uh, I'm curious to know what was the price point in for that first uh, Miami condo back in 2010? Sure, hundred and three thousand dollars US. Wow, uh, wow. <laughs> it's worth and, probably three hundred. Like, what, what kind of rents are you getting now? Uh, we, we just recently rented. Uh, rented. We had a tenant for about twelve years, and she left. So we got more than two thousand dollars for the property. Wow. But you wow. need to know that in uh, for the old condos you pay a high maintenance fee, condo maintenance fee. So yeah, it, it's very high. We started with six hundred dollars thirteen years ago. It's probably um, nine hundred now. So wow. the cash flow is not so big, uh, but but you get lots of appreciation. Right. right. Yeah, great locations. So, what did, what did, what did you say it's worth today, roughly? Around three hundred thousand. Three hundred. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. So talk to us about that. I mean, uh, as a Canadian, what gave you the confidence to just fly to, I mean, I know we're we're just, you know, we're, we're north south, but we're still separate countries. And I know a lot of Canadians face this sort of barrier, they, you know, it's, 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 it's still there's this invisible line, right? And they don't feel comfortable going south. Um, what yes. gave you the comfort to just take the plunge and, and just go and invest in the United States? And, um, you know, were there any mistakes that you made or, or things that you didn't know that you wish you had known with respect to, you know, structuring yourself or taxes or legalities and doing something like that? Okay, yeah. So I'm not sure why why you think I was comfortable. I was not. I just <laughs> went on a plane and and, and bought. Uh, but again, the price was there was not much you know room, room for mistakes. Um, we still overpaid. We could have bought it less cheaper, uh, you know. And but uh, in terms of mistakes, yeah, the mistake number one, I I, I took a local uh, realtor, and I said you guys need to establish an LLC, which is limited liability corporation in US which is awesome for the U.S. investors. It's terrible for the Canadians. Uh, it's because the CRA does not uh, recognize LLCs as a flow truth, uh, meaning they say it's, it's a corporation, so the corporation needs to pay tax, and then you, the owner, also need to pay tax. And there's no credit that you get in, in Canada. They all do it in Florida and in the U.S. Uh, for U.S. investors, but it, it's not something that works for us. So over time, obviously, it had to be fixed. Um, so, yeah, should have probably... Uh, talk to a cross-border CPA before doing anything. Uh, maybe I we rushed, but uh, it, it's something, you know, I, I learned that it's okay to make mistakes on the way. And the person who doesn't make mistakes actually does not act or does not produce anything. So yeah. mistake, mistakes are fixable. And if you don't do mistakes, you don't do enough. So hope it Absolutely. helps. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, if you're not, if you're not failing uh, then you're not growing, right? Uh, that's what Robert Kiyosaki says that as well. Yeah. Um, now, uh, kind of going back to, so what were a couple of your next steps after that condo? You did the uh, Rich Dad uh, education. Did you start um, investing in Canada at all or were you always then focused on in, in the US? No, I started investing in Canada uh, right after that. So I, I did my courses. Uh, I did the mentorship. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, my mentor said, you, you need to start bringing investors. Uh, to bring the investor, you, you as a beginner, you don't have enough knowledge to, to show somebody what needs to be done. So I decided to partner up with different uh, people for different strategies. So back in the day, I did a bunch of uh, rent-to-owns or lease options. So I found a couple of good people, very successful doing that. And I, I structured joint venture partnerships with them. Uh, meaning they would 
operate the uh, the property, they bring the tenant buyers, and I would bring investors. Uh, and obviously, as I started doing, uh, first, I needed to do myself before bringing investors on board for two reasons. First of all, you need to show skin in the game, showing you do and you recommend yeah. the partner because your money should be there. Number two, you need to show or to learn how the partner works because I would bring the, uh, the investor pretty much at 90% ready to invest by answering all the questions about the process, how the program works, what the potential return, the risk. So that's what I started doing. I've, I've done probably around 15 rent-to-owns as a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're starting growing up doing different deals. So 2015, we started doing duplexes conversion in, in Barrie, um, basically buying one property and dividing into uh, two legal suites. Many people did it back in the day. Um, yeah, so that strategy as well. Yeah. So, you know, you did, you know, there's sort of uh, some some core strategies here, rent to own, uh, duplex conversions. Uh, when did you make the leap into larger uh, apartments and, and and you know, development? Development, <clears throat> development yeah. So it, it was 2017. Um, if you might recall, the uh, in Ontario, the province introduced the new mortgage legislation around April 2017. Timing was terrible for me because I left the corporate world in March. So I was sitting at home and I couldn't do a single deal. Uh, it, w- it was a tough time. So we decided to go to US and change the business model um, and, and it worked. So I was looking into Texas and I went to Texas eight times between 2016 and 17. Couldn't close a single deal. Something just fell apart, but... Uh, now, Arizona were you looking came- for like land deals or like some just properties, other kind of properties? It was everything. So we had one deal, well, one land uh, under contract, and we, we didn't close because the numbers didn't work in the end. And there were several partnerships I wanted to establish. And again, n- never panned out. So, uh, and, and then we also looked at Arizona. And I met one developer from Arizona. We needed some investors for, the, for, for his projects. And it was an amazing market back then, still is. And this is how we started doing projects in Arizona. So we changed the business model to partner up with developers, or call them project sponsors. They would be uh, the operation managers doing day-to-day operation of the, uh, the project. And we would come as a capital arm, bringing our investors to the deal and become partners in the deal. So yeah, it's been six years ago. That's oh, cool, nice. yeah. So yeah, we both have questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah t- talk to us about what, uh, your first deal look like? What is your criteria? What kind of, I mean, uh, land development is kind of a big, you know, all different types and all different risk uh, factors, depending on what you're doing. So what what were your criteria when you are, when you were looking and perhaps it has evolved or changed now? What, what are you guys looking for? Yeah. So typically uh, projects sponsor come to us, they, they come to us with projects and, and we'll look into that. But the core strategy for the past six years was what we call build for rent. There is a huge shortage of rental units in the United States. And we're talking today, maybe between four to 5 million units. Yeah. They still need to build and accommodate. So uh, the idea was to buy a piece of land and to build a small rental community. Uh, and it's it's different from building a single homes for, for sale. It's a different type of construction. It's much faster. Um, you know, you do everything the same in every unit. Then you rent them out, and and then you sell it uh, as an income-producing asset to uh, somebody who's looking to buy. Or you can refinance and and keep, 
but our investors were in and out. So we needed to, to pay them back. So that was the core strategy and, and still is to this day. We do different types of deals, um, but we've done probably close to 10 built for end. So the first deal uh, was a property in Scottsdale. Uh, it was 16 units. Scottsdale is a uh, uh, suburb of Phoenix, yep. high-end suburb of Phoenix. It was 16 units. We bought a piece of land uh, for approximately $100,000 per door with permits. Uh, and nice. we, we built and then we sold it close to $8 million uh, with the developers. So that was a good project. took about two years. And one of the reasons we went to Arizona is because they do not have winters. Um, there's no basement, so you, you don't need to dig underground. Uh, the water retention is very simple. It's just let the water dry. <laughs> and I don't know if it's a good thing to say on a podcast, but there's no unions, right? So uh, you got, you got uh, labor that the people come to work, they go home, no strikes. You don't need to deal with all that. So it's, it's pretty fast. And at that time, back in the day, uh, the city was very fast to issue the permit. So you literally could start and finish the project Quickly, our shortest project was 15 months from the day we closed until the day we exited the deal. 15 months, 14 wow. units. <clears throat> you cannot do oh, anything. Awesome. Over here in uh, the GTA, at least, uh, that would be like you, you know, like it's probably like triple the time just to get the uh, entitlement. Um, yeah, right? so so for condo project for large, obviously they're much bigger than what we did, but it's between, let's say, six to nine years today, start to finish. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I wanted to, you know, kind of learn more about why you chose Phoenix um, and why not some of the other markets. Like what led you to into Phoenix? I know Phoenix has been an amazing, one of the hottest markets in the U.S. Um, crazy rent growth in terms of everything, rent growth, population growth, all the um, economic fundamentals were there. But uh, w- was that some like... How did you come across that? Uh, were you doing market research into other areas besides Texas? And then how did you come across it? Yeah, so so that's exactly what we did. So the uh, you, you look at the macro point of view, macroeconomic point of view, and you look at the area. So Phoenix has been on on a you know tear growing cr- like crazy for for years. They overbuilt in two thousand five. Obviously, there was a big crash in two thousand seven and eight, and it took time to come back uh, with the, with the demand. Uh, but what happened after the crash is that the government stepped in. So uh, they expanded the airport. I think they took um, ownership on the airport. That's number one. Number two, they started rebuilding the downtown. They wanted to attract people. So in in large cities, uh, with the exception maybe New York, Chicago, maybe Atlanta, LA, normally people do not live in downtowns. Right? They come commute to work and they go home. The suburbs, uh, and they wanted to change it in Phoenix. So there was a huge amount of apartments for rent being built in, uh, uh, in in downtown, around downtown. On top of that, you you look into uh, population growth and migration of people from other um, states, especially from California. You look into corporations coming into the area because every person that comes to work typically creates around three jobs because somebody needs to serve them, right? To to sell the groceries or, or the gas or doctors or lawyers. Um, so on top of that, uh, the University um, of Arizona is one of the biggest. So they, they were expanding. So students were coming. And lastly, we, we, 
we should not forget that Arizona is the place for retirees to come. So I'd say anyone east of Chicago goes to Florida mainly, but from west to, and, and Canadian also, Calgary, Edmonton, they yeah. go to Arizona. Yeah. So many people buy the secondary homes there. Okay. And it's a big city. Now, Phoenix was, was at the time what we call a tier two city because there were no big corporations or financial headquarters compared to New York and again, Miami. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it became tier one city. So growth was there. We just needed to catch up. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's pretty cool. So, Talk to us about, uh, you know, your journey in raising capital, because I know so many of our listeners, uh, you know, uh, capital seems to be a big, uh, a big topic because many investors feel inhibited by the ability to raise capital. And I think that uh, a lot of people who are looking in the U.S. Uh, wonder how other Canadians, uh, what their comfort is in uh, investing down south. So talk to us a little bit about your journey. Um, where are your investors coming from? Are they Canadian investors? And what is the uh, the draw or the motivation for them to invest in the United States? Yeah, so people would invest anywhere uh, if if you just can show them how they can make money. That's number one. It just doesn't matter if it's US or somewhere else. That's number one. Number two, they most of them, they cannot do... Uh, large project themselves. So they would need somebody like us or any other company uh, to help and guide them. So there is an element of trust uh, and that's the most important thing when you, when you talk bringing capital to, to anything. So there's two ways to, to raise capital. Uh, number one is to do it for the accredited investors only. Okay, uh, the problem with that is only 10% of population uh, is being deemed as accredited. Okay, so Every company that's trying to raise the capital, doing webinars and uh, meetings, they're all fighting for that 10%. Versus we work with what I call busy professionals, so people making good salary, engineers, lawyers, doctors. Um, they might be accredited, might not be, uh, but there is another way. It's, 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 uh, in the US, it's called uh, Rule 506D uh, with the exception B. So if you have a personal relationship with somebody, uh, they can invest in your project. We're not going to, to go too deep into that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'm familiar with the, what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, so from my perspective, I'd rather be working with 90% or 10%. Not to say we're not working with accredited. And most of our uh, investors are accredited, but there's different ways to structure. Right. So in terms of raising capital, all these webinars, people just look at company A, B, C, and D. and pretty much the same deals. You cannot invent the wheel here because all the projects structured the same. So people just looking at the numbers and comfort level. But more what looking people are looking for is, is the personal relation, relationship with somebody who's bringing the capital. And here you need to spend some time, could be a week, sometimes could be five years to make sure somebody trusts you to, to invest with you. So when I started, obviously it was people who knew me my uh, past co-worker, friends and family. And, and then we started growing because people started referring other people to us. We do not advertise. If, if you, you will never find advertising because we're not mass market company, pretty big, but we're not mass market. And it's because we're interested in those long-term relationships with people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that's why I took several years to come to 150 investors. But again, it's, it's a slow and steady. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. I mean, you know, having raised capital myself, uh, 
especially for our Atlanta deals, you know, we understand the challenges, right? Uh, it it takes yeah. a lot of work, a lot of grooming. Um, and and I understand that you have a uh, investor circle as well, right? So Well, that's us- a, the community, yeah. yeah. So be- before that, I'll tell you that most people, they cannot uh, bring funds to projects. Uh, and developers I spoke to, we work with, I would be surprised that they need somebody like us to bring funds to the deal, but you know, it's a different skill. It's a different skill level. It doesn't come overnight. You need to work hard on yourself. Um, your communication with, with people, ability to explain, to show the risks, and not to sell. Like I never sell the, the projects. I, yeah. I sh- the other way, I show all the risk up front and I, I tell people, listen, you need to think well before you invest. And, and it's a skill that you need to build. Going back to investors in the circle, uh, it's it's just an educational community that we established. Uh, it's our way to give back. We don't use it to, to raise money. Um, it just there's so much demand for knowledge uh, from people that that want to be exposed. And many come and you know, hopefully they see us as experts. So we created this community to just to, to teach, to show different strategies, what's possible. The way people can invest, because majority of investors, people call themselves investors, they, they do buy and sell, buy and hold, sorry, buy and hold. There yeah. are so many other strategies around, just people are not aware. So we do it, there's no charge. We get together every three months and uh, we just come and educate. Yeah, nice. no, that's awesome. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the returns. I mean, maybe give us uh, for our listeners an example of uh, a deal that you guys have recently put together. Um, maybe give us some specifications about what it was, what you guys were doing, what the term was, and um, you know, maybe like an idea of what kind of returns investors would receive. Okay. So since we deal with de- uh, development, uh, it's probably the riskiest strategy that, yeah. that's available. So there's so much risk compared to Let's say your Atlanta deal where you bought an existing property. Yeah. Right. So we we expect to compensate people more for the money that they put at risk. Right. Uh, so typically we, we try to structure the, the project where the, the return to investors would be between 20 to 25%. Right. Any other yeah. return. Does it always work? Not always. Right. And uh, uh, especially COVID is an amazing example. I tell people if it's your last money, you should never invest. Because you should be able to sleep at night. Uh, and if something can happen, always, right? Not everything is in our control. So uh, let me give you the best and the worst deal that we did so far. So our best deal was a 15-month project with a 33% annual return to investors. Divorce uh, so far, let me knock on wood. Uh, there was a, a, a project we did, and because of COVID, we got delayed and pro- some other reasons. So we decided to sell the land. And it took three buyers to buy. So the buyers were coming and walking away. But at the, ta- the same time, we had to pay mortgage. So uh, the that deal, we brought lenders in second position. So those guys did well. They did 18% annual. Mm-hmm. But the equity partners in the deal, because they had to wait, ended up getting less than 8%, around probably 7.8% annual. Now, it's still okay. Nobody lost money, uh, but it, it, this is not the return you know they, they were expecting, and uh, it happens because it's it's um, it's an investment. Some people told me, Michael, you probably will never tell other people about this deal, and I said, no, I'm going to tell everyone, you know, because you're being tested 
when things are bad. Yeah. He, yeah. Here, here you need to show what you're capable of doing. And even in that situation, people were, they made money, not as much as we hoped but they would, but we as general partners didn't make any money, but people got their invested capital back plus some. But even more than that, uh, that project was 28 homes, luxury homes that we were about to build. And should we continue building those homes and come to the market today, it would have been a disaster because at the moment, because you know the, the economical situation is not clear, not, not yeah. sure what's happening now. The mortgage rates are high. Lenders are not lending. There's 70% cancellation for the homes to buy in Phoenix. So the buyers are just walking away. Think about going to the market with 28 homes. Yeah. Could have been a disaster. Yeah. So preserving you, of capital. You exited cells, that deal at the right time then. Yeah. <laughs> a little yeah, later, yeah. But, but, but. Yeah, sometimes things come in unexpected ways, blessings in disguise, right? So, uh, sure. yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. And and I mean, development does have an added risk and, and therefore does have, uh, you know, better returns often than just like a, a multifamily uh, syndication deal. So yeah, definitely. So my my question is that from you know, uh, tell us a little kind of a few objections that you would be getting from uh, raising capital, especially with like development and in you know a cross border project. What are some of the objections that you would be get you'd be getting kind of um more frequent on a frequent basis? Well. Well, I know the objection up, up front. So I answered them during my uh, initial call with, with investors. <laughs> <laughs> so I answered the questions before they asked. But typically, uh, uh, probably number one, I need to give you or, or the project sponsor the money. What happens, how it's managed, uh, you know, how we can assure it. money is being deployed properly. That's yeah. number one. Yeah. So you need to, to advise or let them know what the process is. How you transfer the fund, how the title company works, what's title company? Yeah. And obviously the second one is the taxation. Yeah. And here you need to explain the, the way the taxation works. Uh the the your tax treaty between Canada and United States. They need to fill out the uh, taxes if you partner in the deal. What's K1 form? So that's probably the biggest uh, thing that people don't understand. And I explained how we structure, which type of entity we use. So as the Canadians, in the beginning of our conversation, I gave an example of LLC, which is bad for Canadians. So I also explained how we avoid uh, getting double taxation. So we use different structure. But yeah, taxation, it's probably the, the most uh, common topic of, of questions on top of what happens, you know, if somebody goes under the bus. How do I yeah. get my mind? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. So what is the typical term like for a development deal? Uh, what is the typical uh, capital commitment? Um, yeah, like, what, well, I guess, what, what are some of the minimum investment uh, from um, uh, from the investor point of view? And like, what are, what's your typical term um, look like? I understand. So for us, the minimum is $50,000. So if the project is in Canada, it's in Canadian currency. If, uh, it's, if it's in U.S., it's obviously in U.S. dollars. And it's it's connected to the question of accredited investors before. We're not, again, not mass market company. We're not some crowdfunding portal yeah. that can accept uh, money from small investors. Uh, we, we work with accredited or sophisticated, and I want to make sure this is not their last money. Yeah. So that's why the yeah. threshold to start with us is pretty high. 
um, for that reason. Uh, in terms of timing of the project, it's typically between two to three years. Nice. And to nice. finish. No, that's amazing. I think like, there is a uh, COVID. I, I, I mean, from depends on a person's perspective, but I, I mean, fifty thousand is. It, I think it's it's a reasonable amount. Um, I know that you know if you typically when you go through the exempt market uh, world, they're usually you know twenty five thousand or sometimes yes. even lower. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, that's um, definitely another avenue uh, for some people that. For yeah. Some people, yeah. Well, well, the difference. Uh, between EMDs or exact market dealers and us is because people work directly with us. We participate alongside with them in the projects we also invest and they get direct access to us. And I, I cannot properly serve 2000 investors. There's only X amount of people I can give my attention to because they, they can access me, they can call me. Right. And I usually reply very fast. So uh, that's the difference between us. Again, it's, it's just choice. Uh, I'm not saying Anything is better than other, right? But it's we we that's how we operate. Yeah, and and um, I guess the what what does your typical day look like, uh, Michael? Is it more like you're analyzing deals, uh, investor relations, um, all of the above? Yeah. So uh, I do uh, mainly the investor relationship. So the existing and and you. I do a little bit of business development, uh, meaning um, initial conversations with potential partners. Um, and if it's something uh, that can be uh, worked any further, I bring uh, my partner in. I don't do due diligence. Uh, that's He's much stronger and knowledgeable in what he does compared to the project. So he would uh, analyze the deals uh, and do negotiations with the uh, uh, partners and prepare the, the paperwork. The moment... Uh, this project is a goal. I step in and uh, I work with investors. Uh, my typical day is that's that's what I do. So a lot of work with investors, existing, uh, you know, new people call me. I do a little bit of marketing. So you, know, you guys interview me, some other people, but uh, mainly meetings yeah. with people who either invest with us and they come, want to talk, or the upcoming investors, or potential investors. Or partners who want to to do deals with us, so right. that's yeah, for sure. So maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about the market, and you know, we're we're in twenty twenty three now. Uh, this time last year would have been maybe a different conversation. Uh, so uh, there's lots of investors out there who are wanting to hear more about what the market is doing and how other investors are adapting or changing strategies, or uh, you know whatever they're doing to cope with the current market conditions. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how you feel about the current market and what you anticipate for your company in 2023. Is there a different direction? Are there different types of projects you're looking at? Is there any kind of pivot or change uh, to, you know, adapt to the environment right now? Yeah, very good question. So, so yes, the market this year is different compared to last year. And it, it's supposed to be like that because it cannot go up forever. You know, the uh, yes. uh, if you go back to, to the you know beginning of COVID, uh, for the past two years, people were sitting at home. There was no nowhere to spend the money. And so they decided to invest. So they invested in crypto, they invested in stock market, they invested in real estate. And all three went up, I don't know, but probably like double in, in, in the amount. 
whatever goes up that fast has to come down. Because at some point of time, the, the buyer, the next buyer says, well, it became too expensive. I'm not going to buy. And then it becomes a snowball. So to adapt to a market, uh, you as, a, as an investor, you need to adapt yourself to, uh, to the conditions. Meaning if something is going up, uh, you can buy uh, and uh, make money if it continues goes up. Or what we do, we create a product. We develop, we create, and we sell at a high price. If the market goes down, then yes, it's a good question that you ask. And yes, we're going to change the strategy. So we're going to start looking into buying because now it becomes cheaper. But also we, we're going to start looking into different states and into different strategies. So I'll give you an example. We, we just partnered up and we bought a hotel in Lake Placid. So that's going to be something that's income producing. So that's one industry that I think is going to, 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 to thrive this year because people are sitting at home for too long. So anything related to travel, uh, I think it's good. The second one, uh, we're looking into assisted living. So it's like a nursing home. Uh, it's a still development deal with uh, uh, something that can be done, you know, kept for a long time. And it does not depend on the economy. Okay, so that industry is, uh, unfortunately, people get sick. So you're going to continue getting income if you do it properly. And number three, we're going to look into further uh, into do land development deals because people still need to live somewhere. More houses are needed. I, I mentioned that there's a shortage of between four to five million homes in the United States. So yeah, we're going to continue building. We're probably going to continue building for rent, right? Because unfortunately, what happened is uh, if somebody, let's say, let's take Las Vegas, for example, uh, I think uh, you needed about $42,000 to buy house in, in Las Vegas three years ago, uh, a salary of 42. Yeah. I think now yeah. you need around 84. Wow. So I don't know how many people you know that doubled their salary in the past three years, yeah. but the property value doubled, meaning most people will continue renting and, and probably there will be a, maybe even a whole generation of people who would not be able to buy. Yeah, so there will be huge demand for rent. And if you can come with a product for rent, this is something that you can do. And I think that's that's what we're going to continue doing. So if it's development only for rent, yeah. and if the market you know goes down even more, yeah, we'll start uh, looking to buying. And yeah, for, for our listeners' sake, can you explain what's the difference between a multifamily and a built-to-rent and why you have chosen the built-to-rent route versus developing multifamily? Yeah, so multifamily typically uh, is for lower income okay. um, people. So nothing bad, bad with that, but it's, it's, it's the rent and the population. And when the economy is bad, some of those people lose their jobs. Uh, this is low-paying jobs, and you need to work harder to replace them or to collect the rent. Versus with the built for rent, you target uh, what's called renters by choice or a, a, a class properties, right? So those are the people who just decide not to buy or they, they work, they, they make good money, but cannot uh, get a mortgage today these days, right? So they're okay paying rent. So those typically would be what we call white collar people, engineers, doctors, lawyers, they have no problem paying rent and they, they have no problem paying more than what you would charge. So 
those are the communities. Uh, it's it's homes. You don't build vertical, lower construction cost. Um, it's a gated community in Florida, just just for rent. So it's it's a product for I wouldn't say niche, but it's not a product for everyone. With that right. being said, there's so much shortage of rental uh, homes or apartments. So there is a property for everyone. So we we prefer to 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 be building and renting for people with hiring. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a, nice. that's a great niche and some great points you brought up about some of the struggles with uh, traditional multifamily for sure. So uh, different strategy, different uh, target. And uh, yeah, no, that's really cool. Really. I, I think I learned uh, something I didn't, I didn't quite realize that there was such a product. So that's, that's really awesome. So, I mean, uh, talk to us about, uh, you know, your vision for the company. I mean, over the next three to five years, uh, what do you hope to do and uh, where do you hope to take the company? Well, I think we, we hit this uh, sweet spot. Uh, in terms of amount of investors, we're uh, it's a good decent number, so probably will grow by uh, 25, 30%. At some point, I would have to say stop. I cannot take any more calls. Right? Um, <laughs> we're a small company. We want to stay small. It's convenient for us. So I'm not uh, a visionary like Elon Musk. I'm not here to change the world. Uh, <laughs> I'm here to help people. Yeah. As, as many as I can, but I can't help uh, you know everyone. So we're going to bring some more investors to our projects. In terms of the amount of money we bring to the deals, maybe we did 10 million last year, so maybe we'll do around 15. That That's probably uh, 20, maybe uh, the maximum we would be willing to do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So it took five years uh, from the moment I left the corporate world to come to this point. Um, and we got many repeat investors. So there is every time we exit the project, most people say, what do we do next? So there, there is not so much need for us to uh, to look for new capital. Uh, there's a very good core group of people that are uh, working with us. Probably I would do a little more education, uh, sharing the knowledge, doing more events, educational events, which is, you know, share my experience, what I, what I was able to do. Um, that's pretty much it, right? Enjoy life, yeah. right? Uh, so nonchalant, that's just kids. it. You know, we're going to bring 20 million next year. No big deal. <laughs> oh, that, that's pretty awesome. Well, you said three to five years. I didn't say anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, for sure. That's that's great. Um, I think I learned a lot. I think, uh, you know, your strategies is great. And um, I commend you for your success and uh, being able to convince all the Canadians to get on board and uh, start investing their money because... Um, I think that we are generally a conservative society and sure. yeah. uh, definitely is a, a challenge to um, build that trust and to uh, educate people enough that they understand. And, and and I, we, Jose and I both believe that investing is not a choice anymore. It's a must. Uh, you need to have your capital working for you, especially with uh, the economy the way it is and the cost of living. And uh, we could go on and on, but everybody should be investing their money in some form. And, you know, we believe as well that real estate is the best vehicle to get you there. So, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, there's so many options that real estate gives and depreciation. It does not depend uh, like a stock market on what other people think or do. Yeah. So I agree with you. And this times, yeah, with the high inflation, it's you need to protect your capital. So real estate yeah. is one of the best vehicles out there. And Absolutely. thank you for the warm words. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so yeah, Michael, what's the what's the best way for people to get uh get in touch with you? Um you have uh cfpgroup.ca. And by the way, I uh just to touch on that, how did you come up with the name Connect Fund Profit? Yeah, so it used to be uh cash loan properties. And, oh, and then we, we did some rebranding during COVID. We had time to think. So, yeah, we were thinking what CFP stands for and, uh, you know, in comparison to what we do. Because yeah. pretty much we connect the investors with the project sponsors. Yes. Right? We're, yeah. in, we're people in between. We're not brokers. We participate in the projects. Yeah. But yeah. that's what we do. So we connect. We fund the deals. We profit together and just repeat. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, well, yeah, we'll so cfpgroup.ca, nice- that's our website, and you can look me up on LinkedIn, Facebook, and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And um, I know that people can uh, schedule a 15-minute uh, strategy session if they're interested in investing sure. in any of your projects. So we'll definitely link all of that in our show notes. I think that um, you know our listeners would have got great value from our conversation today. We certainly did. Thank you for giving us your time and uh, sharing your experiences with us. We really appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks.